on the show, we're talking about hiring. We have a pretty large crew of guests, so I'll let them all introduce themselves on the show rather than take up your time here. But we do talk about the entire developer hiring process from how to advertise your company to potential candidates through coding tests and interviews and all the way to the final decision process. It's a great conversation with a lot of different perspectives and a lot of good advice. I think you'll like it. We'd like to hear from you. What do you look for when hiring developers? And what do you think works and doesn't work in your company's hiring process? Let us know at techdonewrite.io slash 56 or on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. Before we start the show, one quick message. TableXI offers training for developer and product teams. If you want me to come to your place of business and run an interactive hands-on workshop, I would very much like to do that. We can help your developer team learn topics like testing Rails or Rails and JavaScript or managing legacy code, or we can help your entire product team improve their agile process. If you're in the Chicago area, be on the lookout for public workshops starting in early 2019. As you hear this, we will have just run our first How to Buy Software workshop and keep an eye out for more to come. For more information, email us at workshops at tablexi.com or hit us on the web at tablexi.com slash workshops. And now, here's the show. Hi, everybody. We're here on the show this week to talk about hiring, and we have a lot of guests this week, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves one by one. Jennifer, would you like to start? Sure. Hi, my name is Jennifer Tu, and I'm one of the co-founders of Cohere. We are a small software consulting company that focuses on both creating software and helping the teams that deliver that software. And uh, last year at RailsConf, I gave a workshop on interviewer skills. Great. And Z? I'm Z Spencer. I work with Jennifer at Cohere. And a slight reframe on who we are is we are a technology and management education consultancy. So we don't do a lot of typing code for money. We do a lot of pairing with existing managers and existing engineering leaders to help them be more effective in the myriad of challenges and tensions that you face as an engineering leader or a manager and executive. Okay. And we have Thayer. Hello, I'm Saya. I built Team Prime about 15 years ago after coming to the dark side, leaving programming behind to try and fix the recruitment industry. I mostly work on building inclusive teams and help people understand why diversity is really useful in technology. And I'm from London. And Matt. I'm Matt Patterson. I'm a software consultant. Um, I run software teams in a large organization at the BBC, and I've been CTO of a small startup. I've done hiring in both the situations, and uh, yeah, I still have some feelings about that. Let's start with asking, what do you think the biggest mistake people make when they are trying to hire developers, or a mistake you see really commonly? I'll dive in. So for me, one of the biggest mistakes anybody makes in, in hiring at all is hiring people they like and that they want to work with because they're nice, as opposed to hiring against a speck of what the work is supposed to be doing and what a job should be fulfilled with the, the human's capabilities. So more often than not, I see hires because people enjoyed meeting somebody at interview rather than actually looking at how well they do against the skills needed for the job. I feel like I see something very similar, but coming at it from a different angle, which is teams that hire for this platonic ideal of someone who is incredibly technically talented and isn't actually bringing the skills that that team needs in order to fulfill whatever their mission is. I think I see something similar um, to Jennifer, uh, which is teams hiring against the interview but the interview is not actually a real test of what they need. So they get people who can do well at an interview, but can't actually do well at the job. 
the biggest mistake I see is a decoupling of the incentives around hiring. What happens, and I think this manifests in the ways that you know you all have you have all mentioned. But when we disconnect the control and the autonomy around hiring from the team that is doing the hiring and the team that is bringing on this new member. We make a mistake with how the incentives work, right? Suddenly it becomes a, we need to fill 20 headcount and it becomes less. We need to build a team that is capable of accomplishing the goals that the organization has set forward. And when we fall into that trap, we create these proxies for what a competent, you know, team member is. Maybe they feel really good. Like we like the conversation or like Jennifer says, they maybe have the technical skills, but they're not bringing a healthy mindset to the team. Or like Matt has said, like we have these rules about how we interview that are decoupled from the day-to-day work and that decoupling causes our hiring practices to identify candidates who aren't as valuable or as useful in the current context as they might be. Interviews are are pretty established as the as the way that you know we find people to hire. How do we work around these tendencies and create a hiring procedure that identifies and allows you to make decisions on the people um, that are really going to be able, able to, to fill your needs? I've been working on hiring procedures with companies for quite a while now. And one of the things I found over the last decade that seems to really work well is to do a bunch of different types of interview. So you get your first sort of initial ones that I think most people are used to, such as a telephone interview to make sure expectations are set, a face-to-face to make sure that people understand the depth and breadth of the job and make sure that they're enthused to keep going with the interview process. But then the real crux of it for me that I've found working with people tends to be doing a half-day on-site. So that's where you'd actually work with two or three people in different teams. A lot of the companies I work with work in product teams or agile teams. So If you're a developer, for example, you'd actually end up working during that half day, maybe an hour with a product person, listening to their brief and seeing that you understand and how you communicate, but maybe also working with a junior designer. And that way, also making sure that you're working with people that seem different to you, look different. So if you're a white male, hopefully you'd either work with a person of color at one of those interviews, or you'd work with a female or somebody junior to you or somebody senior. So you get that range of communications within a kind of four-hour block. And what it gives the person who's interviewing is the ability to actually understand what that job feels like in reality, not just meeting people they're trying to impress in an interview. Because one of the things I think people struggle with in interview is they spend so much time trying to impress them to get the job that they don't actually get to understand what the workplace is like for them. And that's super important. One issue that I have with that particular process for us, we're a consulting company and a lot of our stuff is client work and often bringing people into a client project that's not our own project that might have its own set of NDAs is sometimes challenging. Uh, We work around that in slightly different ways. Jennifer and Z, what do you think are the kinds of processes that you like to see people build in their interview process? Yeah, so I was uh, just working with another consulting company around their hiring process. And the approach that we took was to center what their values were and what they needed to find that was compatible with the way they wanted to exist as as a team. And that meant that we needed to start by digging into what those values were and helping them figure things out. And this is another one of those classic mistakes that people make. There are so many teams out there that when you ask them what they want out of their new developer, their new teammate, will say, oh, we want someone who is smart and learns quickly and isn't an asshole. That doesn't really tell you what they're looking for because to one team, a jerk might be something completely different. 
So what I mean by that is for some, for some people, valuing whether or not you are direct is a quality of not being a jerk. But for other people, valuing someone else's feelings as you give them feedback and prioritizing that over the efficiency of giving them that feedback is what makes not a jerk. Yeah. Matt, what have you seen be successful in your experience hiring? I've found hiring very difficult for different reasons. Um, in, in the startup context, I found lots of problems around uncertainty about future funding and those kinds of problems where you're asking people to commit to you and you're not sure you know, how realistically your commitment to them, how viable over the kind of medium term your commitment to them would be. And then the other problem is getting people to actually find out that you want to hire, particularly in a, in a, in a place like Berlin, which is a, a tech hub. And there's a lot of companies. A lot of them have a, a lot of money and a lot of budget to tell people that they're hiring. And if you don't actually just getting anyone to actually hear that you are a lovely place to work and you have rewarding and challenging things to do with a lovely team. Actually getting that message out to enough people that you'll get responses and get enough responses that some of them will be people that would in turn be worth working with is, is actually really hard. That was the biggest problem at the startup, whereas at the large organizations, the, the, the bigger problems are just the sheer weight of, of, of getting through um, the process. Uh, so very strongly established processes, some aspects which were really, really good, and some aspects of it were less good. So I think kind of swings and roundabouts, but there's those kind of two big problems. One is actually the advertising part of it, and the other is the making sure that you can cope with the, the, the work of doing the interviewing and doing the sorting through applications and doing the all the kind of the work around hiring, which if you're very busy, uh, and you've got people leaning on you all the time. It's very hard to actually give that the attention it deserves. And then you wonder, well, why aren't I getting quality candidates? Why isn't anyone responding to my job ad that makes this place sound like a gulag? Those kinds of things. Yeah. One thing I definitely learned when I was in charge of hiring is it is incredibly time consuming to do well. Jennifer, was there something you wanted to add? Yeah, Matt, I was kind of wondering when you had the problem of how to get your company's name out there, did you find anything in particular that worked? The thing that really worked for us was word of mouth recommendations for people through other people who already knew us. So somebody knew somebody who was wanting to leave London and move to Berlin. And they're like, oh, we know, you know our friends here have, are looking for a job. And that actually can work really well if you're quite small. If you're a magical unicorn and you need to fill 500 jobs, then that's not going to work for you. But for you know, if you have one or two and you have a good network of people, then that might work for you. In which case, you know, maintaining that network is really important. I would flag that a little bit because I think actually this is the number one diversity mistake that all companies make, especially startups. And, and it's one that's totally understandable, but also entirely avoidable. So what happens is you have a startup where you get your first seed round and you start hiring and nobody really knows how to hire. It's always somebody else's job. So what you do is you ask your network, you ask friends of friends and you find people and you find people that look like you. And then usually when people get to about 10, 20, 30 people big, they start freaking out that actually it's all white guys or they're all from a certain area or all from a certain college. And then they have to pay quite a lot of money to have people come in and tell them how to try and diversify. But of course, the problem there is actually retrofitting inclusion is really hard. Like it's something you need to think about from the beginning. And actually, I don't think any of us 
have a big enough bubble to have truly inclusive teams. So although I think it's a good strategy, it should be part of your strategy. And I think that alongside asking people in your network and networks of networks, we should also be breaking into communities that don't look like us and don't sound like us and weren't in the same schools as us and, you know, don't have the same color skin, et cetera. Yeah, I just wanted to to yes and with Thayer there because, like, I have made that mistake in the past, right? Like, I have fallen into the trap of friends and family hiring is kind of what I call it. Like, when you go and get your seed round, go to your friends and family. That makes sense. They're the ones who trust you. They're the ones who like you. They're the ones who are willing to give you the resources. But when you are reaching out to make your hires, it's really, really important to advertise in communities that are not necessarily the kind of communities that you are used to being in, right? So one of the ways that I have mitigated this in the past, and again, this is not a panacea, is to uh, spend most of my social activity around networking focusing on communities that are not that don't look like me and doing it in a way that I hope and uh, my my friends uh, hopefully will correct me when I am out of line here that is supportive of their initiatives so there's this amazing video of this notion of a first follower someone who comes in behind someone and like adds validity to their activity and what I've spent a lot of my time and attention doing in the last 5 years has been being that person for communities that aren't just white dudes, uh, people that aren't just uh, for communities that aren't just, you know, self-taught programmers, communities that just aren't just, you know, MIT grads, right? And part of my intentional act of inclusivity is to minimize myself and minimize who I am, not in a unhealthy way of like self-loathing, but so that I can fit safely into spaces that are predominantly you know, person of color led, right, or predominantly women led and not overpower with my traditional energy <laughs> that can sometimes just overwhelm a space. That has always been part of my approach. I completely agree with that. It can't be all that you do, but the quality of your network in terms of how many different kinds of people are in it, that's super important if you want to successfully get a team that doesn't just look like you. And I think it's it's really important to do that and i think it's really important to do it as early as possible because you know as as we've we've heard the the costs of fixing that later on are huge and the opportunity cost of the perspectives you lose during that time it's huge as well i think it's a really terrible waste and it's not certainly i know i think when we hired that way we were quite lucky we didn't just hire other white dudes but we got lucky and i desperately wouldn't want to have to rely on that again to try and fill position. Now, I'd want to have the skills to do a better job, which is why I would talk to someone like Thayer in the future to try and start that at the very beginning when, when getting things going because it's really hard to hire. And that's one of the things we've heard from pretty much everyone here. You know, if your core skill is not hiring, chances are you're not going to be the best person at it. So I completely agree. And I've got a question for everyone, actually, because I've just been having this discussion with a few people over the last couple of years, and I would love everybody's input. But I have a blog post brewing in me that recruitment is a C-level word, uh, which is a, an English joke on a bit of a, a swear word there, which I shan't say. But the idea being, for me, is that quite often I get called into companies that have grown 50, 60, even 100 plus people big without hiring anybody in 
in looking after people. So like a people role. I don't like the word HR, so I'm not going to use HR manager, although that's a separate skill set, I think, anyways. But it is really weird. So what I guess my question to everybody is, is that my feeling is that really, as soon as you get your seed round, as soon as you know you're going to grow more than one or two, three people in the next year, I truly believe that you need to be engaging either with somebody part-time to work on your people side of things, to take that off you and make sure that things are being done really well and delightfully, both internally and externally. Or if you're hiring, you know, 10 plus in a year, that you should consider getting a permanent full-time head of people type role. And for me, head of people, just to be quite clear, is all the recruiting up into your company and then onboarding and looking after. But it's not the traditional HR role of like reviews and contracts and the legal side. I see that as a separate role as well. So I just wondered from everybody what your thoughts are on that. That actually wound up being my role for about a year and a half. It was essentially everything that was traditional HR except benefits. So that included recruiting and onboarding and and also reviews. And I definitely think having spent, I've spent a lot of time at relatively small consulting companies. And there's definitely a difference between the people that the, between the ones that invest in personnel, like meta personnel, personnel about their people early and the ones that don't. And yeah, I, I agree completely that, that like I was not in any way trained to do interview stuff beyond being a developer and having a lot of opinions about developer interviews. I am all in favor of bringing someone on to manage the recruiting pipeline early. I was the fifth hire at a startup a few years ago. And the C-suite was like, we need to grow to 40 people in the next year. And I was like, oh God, we need to hire someone who is actually good at this because I am not. And I am technically just a senior engineer on paper. And that's what I want to do. Please don't make me do this. And of course that didn't happen because it's a startup and really everyone just does through the friend and family anyway, Z, it's fine. And (laughs) like, I'm glad I got the opportunity to do that because, you know, I learned a lot about hiring. I learned a lot about managing a recruiting funnel and like making sure that as people progress through the funnel, we're reflecting regularly on is the funnel excluding people based upon non-significant factors such as ethnicity or race or gender or age, right? Like those factors are not blockers for your competency, right? Yeah, we did an audit of our funnel to make sure that, that, that every step was representative of the population that was getting to that step was represented by the population going out of that step. It's a good, it's a good thing to do. How did you do that audit? Approximately. We didn't have all the information we needed to do it, but we were hoping that we would be able to catch a large scale effect of like all the women dropping out at the code sample or something like that. Did you find anything? We were able to convince ourselves that we did not have such an effect and that therefore our problems were in our input pipeline and not in our through pipeline. I have an amazing anecdote about that kind of thing. So one of the first things I noticed was that when we sent a take-home back with people, the percentage based upon perceived gender, which is really all I could really look at, of people who came back with a take-home was approximately 20% not masculine presenting and 80% masculine presenting. So like that take home, like the fact that we were sending this out was the biggest blocker from a gender axis for inclusivity in our pipeline for us. And that just like blew my mind when I did the math to look through and like, oh yeah, we got like, we put 60 people through this step. And like, (laughs) we've been pretty good about like bringing people in who are not you know, not white dudes, uh, and reaching out to them and getting them to apply. But the fact was our our design was removing people disproportionately and uh, along that axis at the very beginning. And it just like, 
taking the time to do the math and look into the system and approach it not from a judgmental perspective of like, oh, gosh, like we're just not inclusive enough, but from a how do we make this a more inclusive environment and a more effective hiring funnel for everyone uh, shifted our dynamic so much that we went to a approximately a 50% masculine, feminine presenting kind of uh, workplace in the next three, four months. I specifically wanted to talk about that kind of take-home exercise because we do one, but we do a lot of stuff in the way we present it designed to try and avoid the kind of problems that Z, you were talking about because we, we were you know aware of those problems and, and tried to work around them. So I was kind of wondering what everyone else on here thinks of that kind of exercise as a way of ascertaining somebody's technical level. Is it useful? Is it more trouble than it's worth? Like, how do you feel? It's a good way of ascertaining how much free time they have. <laughs> I mean, it's not the most you can say about it, but it's they're really problematic because not everyone has a huge amount of time. And not everyone has the same amount of time at all points in their lives. You know, I have a, a young, very young child and now doing, you know, doing something that takes an hour or two in the evening is, I mean, that's, that's an hour more than I have really. And certainly, you know, something that requires really serious thought. I couldn't really do that. And, you know, there's a whole swipe of people who have a whole bunch of other responsibilities outside the work that means that really, you know, as soon as you ask them to do a take home exercise, particularly one that is that has a significant time component, you know, they just like out, they can't do that. I would add to Matt's uh it's a good judge of how much spare time your candidate has, that it's also a good judge of if your candidate approaches an ambiguous situation in an identical way to what you would do yourself. And if this is what you are aiming for, that what you want is people who are sufficiently homogenous that they can anticipate how everyone would behave in an ambiguous situation, then you would be achieving that goal, but you would be achieving it at the sacrifice of goals around being able to approach problems from a more holistic perspective that could bring you to a better solution. The way we shifted it is, first off, we acknowledged that each person has a different mode of operation. And one of the things that we had agreed on as a team outside of the interviewing is that we wanted to support both high pairing time and non-pairing time, right? Because some of us were like, we love pairing, we'll do it six hours a day. And some of us were like, if I pair for more than two hours a week, I will literally collapse into a ball, right? I mean, it's not quite that bad, but if we took that as the dichotomy. And so we were like, well, in order to be a healthy organization where all the people who already participate can also healthily participate in the future, we need to design our system, our, our, our hiring system such that we are not disqualifying people based upon their willingness to, you know, pair or not pair or their willingness to do this in the way that we intend versus do this in a way we don't and instead give them a bunch of options that they can opt into, but do so in such a way that the output is the same. The output we were from our take home was, you know, working software, right? We sent them a Rails application and we said, Hey, if you want, you can add a very small feature. And we outlined the feature in the email. You can submit a pull request to this private repository that we just forked to you. And you can send us comments and questions through that. Or what you can do is schedule a two hour pairing session with us where we will help you solve this feature together and submit it as a patch. And then what we would do is we would look at the pull requests, we would look at the comments, we would look at the commits, and we would use that time boxed 
time period, basically, to determine whether or not they are capable of shipping features in a somewhat ambiguous but well-supported environment in a manner that is compatible with our existing team. And in a manner that we could expand the team to encompass their cultural needs, but also where that becomes visible early, but doesn't overpower the signal that comes from the session. Yeah, we wound up doing some similar kinds of things. We made it pretty clear our take-home was to structure a very simple Rails app. And we made it really clear that we were not going to be evaluating, for example, design, which takes out a lot of what people spend a lot of fiddly time on, a lot of the how much spare time does a person have. And we also tried to make it very clear that if somebody was unable to do this in a take-home kind of situation, that we would allow them to come in and pair, like that we would jump directly to the pairing session, which was the next part of it. Not very many people took us up on that, but as far as we can tell, this seems to have helped us avoid some of the problems with this, but it's kind of hard to tell. My question is, what is the most useful aspect of a take-home test? Because from my perspective, a working code is not the most useful output of a process like this. The most useful thing is to know how someone approaches a problem uh, like this one that's you know, defined perhaps quite ambiguously or perhaps very unambiguously, but how they approach the problem and how they figure out what they're going to do and why they're going to do it. And that's one of the things you can get from the final artifact, which is one of the, the big problems I have with take-home tests. So I was wondering, you know, how do you deal with that to make your take-homes useful? There's a saying by Sandy Metz where she says, the cost of the code is not in the writing of it, but in the reading of it. And I feel like that's one of the mistakes that teams make around take-homes is they feel like the, the cost of assessing this candidate comes from having to talk with them for an hour and, and pair with them or, or watch them code. And, and that hour they feel is a loss. And that's ignoring the cost of spending the time to read the code that would be submitted as part of a take-home and understand and evaluate it. It takes much longer to do that than it would to spend the hour to sit with a candidate. But because you don't have that time allocated, it's much harder for teams to to see and recognize that problem. I would push back a little bit on the notion that the artifact, the output, is not the most important part of the interview process. Keep in mind, when I talk about take-homes, I'm not talking about can you solve this problem. I'm talking about can you submit a patch to a functioning piece of code that implements a feature? And can you do it in a way that is aligned with our norms and behaviors, right? So if someone pushes up a pull request and it's full of jargon or one-letter variable names or whatever, it is the responsibility of the interviewer to be like, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to send this out. Here are some refactoring suggestions I would make, just like we we're doing a code review within our existing workplace. And I was hoping that maybe if you could take another small period of time to either work through that, or you can schedule an hour or two hours to pair with me as we refactor through this together. And what that does is it gives another seam, right? Another, like if you think about software development, you want to give seams to your system architecture so that you can inject the appropriate behavior for the appropriate context. This gives you a seam for your recruiting system to allow your organization to get richer, more interesting information 
in a way that is mutually respectful of one another's time, right? You're not saying, hey, I'm not going to accept this until you fix this. You're saying, hey, if you have the time and attention, one thing that would be beneficial would be this, and I am willing to take that step with you. I am willing to be on a call with you and do this full in real time because your time is valuable. And that's a pretty significant shift from okay, you submitted the take home, I'm going to go through it and judge you on eight axes and be like, I'm sorry, your variable names were terrible, right? Because that's just not healthy. (laughs) Is that still mutually respectful, given that now you've introduced a possibility of expanding out the interview process? And are you going to do that for every candidate who's like that? Is it okay that you're judging one candidate based off of 10 hours of work and a different candidate on three hours of work? The next step in our process historically has been a pairing session on the take-home sample. And we generally are pretty generous about who gets to that step. The pairing session is usually the, the step that is the tough hurdle. And one of the things we do in that is to try to ascertain what how the person responds to feedback about their code. That's often the interesting bit of information, especially for like an entry-level position where what they do on their own is probably not representative of how they're going to be able to write code after having been on a team in our place for, you know, a couple of weeks. Yeah, that feels really good to me. Like setting the expectation that they will get time with you once they send the artifact, regardless of how they do it. I feel like that helps address Jennifer's concern about the playing field being not quite level and having to figure out how to balance the different time investments that candidates have put in versus, you know, just running with it. So that's that's a really nice adaptation. One of the ways that I approach interviewing as a candidate is that I uh, regard the interview process as a way for me to assess uh, whether the company is worth my time. It seems like one of the really great things about pairing is that it's a very two-way process. So you learn about me and what I do, and I learn about you and the way you think and the way you you do. Whereas with the take-home, the only communication from you to me is is just the the kind of, you know, the piece of metaphorical piece of paper you give me that says, make a thing that does X. How careful do you have to be with that if to actually communicate the kind of the things that someone really wants to know about your organization? Like, do you you make sure that you use a test that's related to your product or the way that you work on projects? Um, or do you, you know, one of the kind of pick one of the, the algorithm examples or something like that? We moved away from an algorithm example because it wasn't giving us the information that we needed. And we moved to something that was a little bit more aligned with our actual projects. I do want to ask, what do you think that you can do in an interview process once you are talking to the candidate? Like, What are good uses of that interview time and what are bad uses of that interview time? A bad use of time is to say, tell me about yourself. No, I completely agree with Jennifer. I mean, I think it was one of the things I started off ranting a little bit about at the beginning of the podcast. It's, it's not about working with people you like. It's about working with people who are great for the job and can do the job. So when you talk about what are good things to talk about in an interview, I always say to people, I mean, I've been doing this for 15 years and I still do this. I take a crib sheet for myself that keeps very specific questions about the role about that person that I've already, you know, looked at their CV and want to delve in about. Usually about five over the course of half an hour to 45 minutes. The first thing I do is let them know exactly what's going to happen. So I'll say this interview is, you know, approximately 30 to 45 minutes long. I'm going to be asking you around five questions. Is there anything you, you know, want to know about the process before we start? Just to make everybody comfortable. And then you know, dig into those questions, but stay on topic. So, you know, if somebody happens to, I love long distance running for 
an example. So if somebody happens to mention for some reason that they like running, not to suddenly go, oh my God, me too. What's your 10K time? Because you can waste, you know, a good five minutes of that 30 minutes on something that's got nothing to do with the job, but this happens quite frequently. So it's, oh, cool. You like running. That's great. But tell me about the project that you managed in 2016 and the biggest client that you worked with and what went wrong and how, how did you solve it? You know, bring it straight back on. The other massive thing I think that a lot of people still seem to subscribe to, which upsets me greatly, is trying to offer to people in interviews or make them in any way feel like they've got to jump through hoops. I'm completely the other way around with this and I advise all my clients and, and anybody well, listening really to do the exact opposite. So our job is to make this person feel as them-like and as comfortable as possible. If they're going to fail the interview, they're going to fail the interview based on their skills or experience not being appropriate. Has nothing to do with how well they perform if they can't keep eye contact with you for example it's got nothing to do with the fact that you know oh they didn't like me they couldn't even look me in the eye i hear this a lot we have an awful lot of people in our industry who are introverts where eye contact is actually quite hard especially in a situation where we're not the one in power so it's all about focusing on the questions the skill sets and making the best use of that time against the job not about what do we think about this person? Are they a good runner? Do they hold eye contact? Oh my God, is she really wearing that? These are bad things. Like just keep it directly to the job. Claire, when you do your interviews or when you give advice to your clients on how to do interviews, do you recommend having uh, any consistency in the questions that you ask your candidates? Yeah, absolutely. So I I think that's really important. And also we review them and get candidates to feedback on them. And and then we review them ourselves as well and and see how they worked. Because sometimes we all come up with a question that we think is really relevant to the role, but actually the answers we're getting aren't demonstrating the sort of thing we want quite consistently. So then we know it's our question rather than anything else. But no, I, I think it's a really good way of working. I first came across this in a really strict way when I was hiring for the UK government. And they actually have sort of a standards based recruiting procedure whereby you have to go in with a set of questions on a matrix that you then score people against between one and five and you have a panel it's it's quite old school and archaic and at first I really hated it and I still don't like panels by the way I think it puts the power on the wrong foot but that aside what it was really good at was actually taking out some biases which we haven't talked about at all yet which we're probably not going to have time to but I found that really fascinating because it stopped people saying, oh, no, I really like this person because X, Y, Z. Again, if you find yourself using the word like, you know, something's gone wrong. It was more about, can they do this? Have they demonstrated experience to do it? And so, yeah, absolutely. You literally add up scores and then work out which one scored the most. And that that was fascinating to me. And it it really does work. Standardization really helps remove bias. Absolutely. Um, So when I was uh, hiring at the BBC, and we used exactly the same process. I think it was literally the same process, the same standard. Um, and it was felt very weird at the time. But the more time goes by, the more I look back on that and think that was a really, at least a lot of the aspects that particularly the crib sheet with the, these are the questions you can ask. You can't ask other questions. You have to understand how these questions map to the job requirements that you put in your job advertisement. If, if it wasn't in your job ad, you couldn't ask a question about it. And then, yes, you add up the scores at the end. I think that can work brilliantly. There are some other issues around exactly how you develop those questions, but I think the, the kind of core idea there is, is fabulous and a really good way of making things explicit, which does help you with some of the biases, not all of them, but quite a lot of them. And that's really, I think it's brilliant. I would do that again. One thing that I've always wondered about the right way to do is what to do at the end of the process. You have a bunch of people who have opinions on the candidate 
And you have to have some way of turning that into a yes, no decision. And I felt like all of the ways that I tried to do that were inadequate in one way or another. What have you done or what are you recommended that you feel like is a good process there? My favorite thing to do is to make sure that everyone writes down their impressions before they talk with anyone else. And by impressions, I mean, write down specific things that happened. So don't just write down, oh, this candidate was good or this candidate was bad. Write down specifically what you observed to support the conclusion you come to. I also really like a one to five system for how much you think the candidate is a higher or no higher. So pick one end of the spectrum for definitely not, pick the other end for definitely yes. Get everyone to record their thoughts separately and then have a synchronous meeting in which everyone simultaneously reveals what their one through five change was. And if you are doing this in person or on video call, you can do this by holding up a fist in the air and on the count of three, flashing a number of fingers. Yeah, we, we call that fist to five. Uh, I learned it from... There's a name? Yes, there's a name. Oh, and it's. All right, cool. I learned it from uh, activism, where uh, you basically hold up your fist, and when you reveal your number, you can leave your hand as a fist to say, and by the way, if this moves forward, I'm out, right? Like, I'm leaving this conversation because I can't in good faith continue to participate, which I think is a really powerful mechanism for consensus and consensual decision making, but it might be a little bit of a derail for this conversation. (laughs) My experience with those with that kind of meeting is you wind up with like a couple f- where you get in a mixed case or where it's just borderline. And, and I, I definitely have had people who say like, if it's borderline, then it's no. Yes. Hard yes on that. If it is borderline, don't do it. You get in a situation where like you talk about it until one side basically is exhausted and then you call the result consensus. And that's generally how these things go for me. But I, yeah, if it's borderline, it's no is a rule that we, you more or less wind up using. It can derail or it can prevent a lot of fairly contentious meetings about that. One thing I just want to jump in on the borderline is no thing. I had a couple of instances where I've been working as like an interim people lead or something at employers. And interestingly, I've had people, hiring managers or interviewees, uh, interviewers, sorry, come to me and ask me some really interesting questions about how to make up their mind. So I'll give you an exact case scenario and I'll leave out everybody's names, obviously. But somebody came to me because they felt they shouldn't employ somebody because they had revealed in their interview that they were bankrupt. And this person I was working uh, for a security company at the time was worried that because they were bankrupt, they may have people that come after them and therefore they may, may sell secrets from the company. Right. And I know this sounds really bizarre, but this was a genuine concern for this person, although they hit all the other skills. And I was super glad they came to me because when they came to me and talked about it and I could explain to them, that's not really our decision to have. It's got nothing to do with the job. It was admittedly strange that person would talk about that in the interview. However, did they hit all the things for the job? You know, keep bringing it back to that. Then that person kind of realized, oh yeah, no, they did. So it depends would be my answer. And if you can, and you really are on a fence, I would try and talk to somebody who does work either in a kind of people management role where they've done quite a few interviews just to bounce me off because it could be something you don't know about. Like that person genuinely felt that was a reason not to employ that person when actually when you bounce it off somebody else, it becomes quite obvious that that's not really a reason we should take into account. I also uh, had a company, and this is illegal, by the way, just to completely underline this, had a company that didn't hire someone because their child was in a different country. So that's illegal. You cannot do that. However, they made the decision on behalf of the candidate that it would be wrong to take that candidate away from their child. 
Was that candidate a woman by any chance? Just Interestingly, in this situation, it was not. Although the company in question did a lot of things against women. Uh, yeah, still illegal. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, was, uh, it was actually a man. And then the child was going to stay with the mother and he was going to move for the job. And they made the decision not to hire him. I just want to vehemently agree with Bayer here in that, like, I get the desire for borderline equals no to be the default. Unfortunately, our cognitive biases are so often below the surface that a borderline may be, and this is not a will be, but a may be indicative of some subconscious permutations that we don't really realize are influencing our decision about the candidate, right? And so I just love how, you know, Thayer talked about bringing this back to the job, because if you don't have that, if you don't have, this is what the job is, this is what we're hiring for, and this is why, it's really hard to have the conversation that is, so can you point to the particular thing in the job that you believe this person is a maybe or a borderline on, so we can discuss that, becomes a much more healthy conversation than this, well, it's borderline, so we're going to say no, right? Or it's borderline, but we're going to say yes, because we want to err on the side of, you know, opportunities for like people who may not align directly with us, right? Because that conversation is so critical to making a good decision. And I agree with Noel that you don't want to be in a spot where you're just using that conversation to beat the opponent into submission. That's unhealthy and terrible. But the conversation is still really valuable. And having that as a possibility and making space for that conversation to happen is is critical, in my opinion. Interviewing as a candidate is still a skill. You know, No matter how much we do to uh, make people feel as, as at ease as possible, um, it's still a skill the candidate's you know, and some people are better than others. So I think it's really important at the end of an interview process, if someone is a no for whatever reason, that you gen- make a genuine offer to provide good quality feedback to that person. And if that person wants feedback, then you provide them with constructive feedback. Certainly in my experience, um, I had a case where someone did a really bad job at an interview, asked for feedback. In the process of giving them feedback, it became obvious that actually they were a fabulous candidate. And with the feedback, then they kind of applied again for another job that came up later on and, and sailed through. And that was brilliant. And so I think if, particularly if it's like someone's first interview or, or they just, you know, they never used in a company of that size or, or whatever it is, you know, it's a whole lot of things that make people really nervous, particularly in the face-to-face stuff. And so actually having an explicit offer of like, we will tell you constructively what did and didn't work in this process can be super useful for candidates and for helping those candidates come back better and more reflective of their true skills uh, later on. Great. I think that's a really good note to end up on. If people want to continue this conversation with you online, uh, where can they find you, Jennifer? You can find me on Twitter as J2. That's three letters, J-T-U. Z? You can find me on Twitter as Z Spencer, Z-S-P-E-N-C-E-R. Or you can mention We Cohere, which is our organization, at W-E-C-O-H-E-R-E. And I watch both of those far too much. So uh, you'll get a hold of me pretty easily there. There? Uh, yeah, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Thaya, which is T-H-A-Y-E-R. Or you can check out my company site, which is team-prime.com. And Matt? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at FidoZ, F-I-D-O-T-H-E. Great. Thank you for being here. This was great. And I'm glad we all made it. And thank you very much. 
Tech Done Right is a production of Table XI, and you can find us on the web at techdoneright.io and on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. You can find Table XI on Twitter at Table XI and on the web at tablexi.com. I'm Noel Rappin. You can find me on Twitter at Noel Rapp. The show is edited by Mandy Moore. She's on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. And of course, if you like the show, tell a friend, a colleague, your social media network, tell me, tell a pet, tell your manager. That would all be very, very helpful. And a review on Apple Podcasts helps people find the show. Table XI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at tablexi.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech.